0: This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy.
1: That's my
0: This week on Race Capital, we're doing something a little different. We want to give you some federal updates for your wallet, some local municipal updates on advocacy, and a story out of Fairfax County that proves that advocates and politicians need to highlight the idea of decarceration during COVID. Stay tuned as we speak to Sean Perryman of the Fairfax County NAACP and Dr. Kristen Reed of Richmond for All, but first we speak to Preston Page of the Monarch Group and Advanced Strategies. Thanks for being here, Preston. Oh, no
1: problem, Chelsea. How are you?
0: I'm doing all right. I mean... you
1: right. You quarantining? I
0: am quarantined since... I Better be. Chloe and I are good.
1: Good, good, good. Tell Chloe I said hi. I
0: will. I will. Um, so first, tell me a little bit about um, what is your work in the community right now?
1: Um, well, right now I work... Um, my full-time job is at Advanced Strategies. We... Uh, are a government relations firm focused primarily on, on state level uh, legislation and local level legislation and the city of Richmond is one of our clients. So um, we liaison between the state government and the city of Richmond to make sure they get what they need from the state level and the federal level and just make sense and, and report on what's going on at the state level. Um, you know, these times and these days, you all always need a side hustle. So I run my own, side firm the monarch group and uh, basically we're a government research and education firm um, as well as business services firm i partner with my friend walker and he provides more of the marketing business related stuff i i focus on our clients that are um regulated by state entities helping daycares and barber shops and trying to democratize lobbying because i i see the clients that come in our office and i feel like everyone should be able to access government relations services.
0: Many people may know Preston because he is in different avenues and places. So I appreciate your work. And I invited you on the show today because you said how important it was for us to share about the CARES Act. Um, tell me a little bit about the CARES Act.
1: Oh uh, well the CARES Act was a well the economic stimulus package. It was phase three of, of the of all of the legislation that was passed by the uh, federal government congress so first one was house resolution uh 60 6071 and that was more so focused to immediate response uh, just to spend helping uh, agencies and and other administrations procure things then we had phase 2 which was focused on more health related issues. I don't have the bill number in front of me, but uh, if you Google phase two, of coronavirus phase two, it will pop up. Uh, That was focused on the healthcare industry and providing extra uh, rights to individuals uh, who are suffering from COVID. I know it gave uh, employees uh, 14 days paid leave if they were tested positive uh, for COVID. And, um that's that's law so a lot of employers are not telling that but the uh, hopefully they are I don't want to put nobody out but uh okay. you are provided 14 days pay leave under law if uh you are if you have this job uh, if you have this virus and you've been tested positive for it wow. uh as well as uh, um, many other benefits in the phase two uh law which was um massaging of the with, I believe that's phase three, but massaging of the HSA health savings account regulations and, and telehealth services, it's, it was a lot of benefits to phase two. Phase three is the most popular one. Cause it gives us our, our $1,200 stimulus check for a single person that makes below $75,000, 2400 for um, a couple, a married couple who filed jointly and $500 per child. Uh, so That is going to be a one-time benefit Um, and those checks are going to start rolling out on April 9th is when the uh, treasury will start uh, releasing those direct deposits. Uh, If you filed a uh, 2018 tax return or 2019 tax return, the Fed already has your tax information. So, um, you should get that direct deposited, however, it gets complicated if you're in an at risk population, maybe you switch addresses or you switch banks or it gets it it get it can get a little um complex uh so definitely reach out to the i r s and make sure you track your your refund once they start releasing those
0: Wow, so. I guess there are three different phases, and this is the the third phase that you're talking about in this particular act that's from our federal government is what is supposed to be really supporting us right now. And I know one question I asked you prior to the interview is this, um, I guess this is something from the federal government that does trickle down and should be for everybody, correct?
1: Yes, it should be be for everybody. Um, I know Congresswoman... Ocasio Cortez wasn't really happy with the with the um, some of the populations and demographics they left out, especially that college demographic, where we have college students that are fending for themselves, but since they're in college, their parents are keeping them on their taxes as dependents, and even though they might need that twelve hundred dollars that that 500 goes to the parents so if you're in that boat i will have and your parents haven't filed their taxes um i would i would strongly consider you talking to them to see if y'all could work out a solution but that's where you see that main um demographic of of people being left out those college-age kids
0: wow wow and I know that I've heard a lot from HBCU specifically about kids that had to go home unexpectedly. couldn't even get home. Didn't, I mean, there was just a lot of different circumstances of why we weren't included into these, these types of, I guess, stimulus packages. Um, What do you see? Is there a stage four? What do you see kind of up next for (laughs) the federal government?
1: Well, uh, Uh, Nancy, I I should, Speaker Pelosi, Speaker (laughs) Pelosi should, she says she's been, she's working on a phase four. I'm not really, I'm kind of really focusing on procurement and what we can control. I don't really like to talk about hypotheticals until I see the legislation passed and I know what I'm working with. But there is talks of a phase four, maybe extending this beyond this just one-time payment. You know, Canada gave their citizens, it was $2,000 a month for four months, Mm -hmm. as well as another uh, um, cachet of of other benefits as well. So uh, there's talks of a phase four. Phase three was quite controversial. They voted on a $2.2 trillion stimulus package by voice vote even though well-merited they couldn't convene but that really set new precedent you 2.2 trillion from by voice vote that that raised some eyebrows definitely at the office
0: you mentioned that it was so unprecedented for this voice vote many people don't know what that means or why that's such a big deal
1: oh well i mean you know when you when you're in Government and, and y'all go by the parliamentary process. Some things are are some things are required to have a recorded vote. Some things you can do with a voice vote. Um, in the essence of emergency, you can you can do a voice vote. But a 2.2 trillion dollar package, the largest in the nation's history, was passed by a voice a voice vote. That's just something that us lobbyists and legislators and those in the governing community just look at as wow so it really doesn't matter but it matters to us um
0: what if they have questions where do they reach out oh uh,
1: well you could reach out you can reach out to a number of places um i know in the city a city of richmond we have the office of community wealth building which has a uh, stood up a uh, definitely a a a response effort in regards to covid and getting people employed those who have uh, been laid off those who have been furloughed um those looking for a job those needing and questions answered um on an individual basis the office of community wealth building is always available the department of social services is always available to answer these questions um, and as well as your state, your state offices—they're pretty busy, so you might have some wait time. But if you want, I will reach out to the local level first. As well as you can email me as well. Um, if you have any questions, I could send you over the handouts that I have that I send to my clients. Um, my email is uh, p page p p a g e dot monarch group at outlook dot com. So that is p p a g e dot monarch group at com as well as you can follow me on twitter at uh uptown preston and uh, my my little nickname is duke of manchester so uh yeah you could you could reach out to me in either of those spaces i'll shoot those documents over to you on uh, no problem and um i, w- I would say it is really important that we get tested. We only have 24,000 tests. I know it's probably up today by a couple hundred, that was yesterday's numbers, but only 24,600 people have been tested for COVID. And to really, to grasp how long this will take, we need to know how many people have been tested, how many people have been um, infected and, VDH can do their work in tracking those people that they've been in contact with, and that will speed up the whole quarantine process. There's a lot of people sitting in the house that haven't been tested, and they're not feeling well, and that's why we see those ICU numbers um, looking like that. They're not really talking about the ICU numbers, but that's the critical number. We got the deaths, uh, we have the positive cases, but that's where the hospitals are seeing the most stress is in the ICU departments and those going into the ICU departments. Mm -hmm.
0: And I am really one of those voices that's also pushing to aggregate that that data by race as well as we start to capture who's been tested and who isn't.
1: And I bet you, I mean, I'm not a betting man, but I bet you uh, our community is probably not getting tested at the rate that we should and uh, just, I just want to make sure that we do, because it's, it's extremely important.
0: All right And our community means our Black community. Thank you so much, Preston Page of Advantage Strategies and the Monarch Group for joining us, as well as the Duke of Manchester and <laughs> in the 6th District of Richmond, Virginia. Thank you for all that you do. Um, one last time, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Uh, you can reach me um, at my email, ppage at... Outlook.com um, on Group at outlook.com, uh, or you can reach me on Twitter at Uptown Preston. Um, that's me, Southside, Best Side. Bedside. Uh, Chelsea's my neighbor. You already know what time it is. Y'all be safe out here for real. It's not no joke.
0: Thank you so much, Preston Page. Up next, we speak to Dr. Kristen Reed with Richmond for All. On the show today, I'm really excited to have uh, a co-founder of Richmond for All, Dr. Kristen Reed. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me.
0: On April the 1st, Richmond for All put out a public statement that really summed up some of the concerns moving forward here in the city with our city council and our administration and how they are... Um, continuing to keep people updated as well as engaged. Can you give our listeners a little bit about what that letter covered on April the 1st from Richmond for all?
2: Yeah, sure thing. So um, we saw in the cities. Um, agenda calendar for Richmond City Council that they were planning to put forward an ordinance that would guarantee what we call continuity of governance in in a time of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And state code actually allows city council a huge amount of discretion in what choices they can make about how city government moves forward in a crisis and what kind of usual practices around kind of basic democratic governance and transparency of governance they're actually gonna hold to. Mm -hmm. So we issued a statement um, just kind of prompting city council to remind them that uh, pathways to participation in local government is incredibly important during a crisis in part because those are the moments when we see a huge uptick in reliance on public services and we also see really amplified effects that government choices can have on uh, vulnerable populations at the city level. Mm -hmm. So we asked city council to um, commit to continuing to have public meetings, Mm -hmm. um, continuing to have public comment, continuing to make um, documentation that is relevant to governance um, openly available in a timely and accessible manner, and also to ensuring the right of the public to fair and democratic access to elections. and um, we saw a few days later that City Council did put forward an ordinance that committed to holding public meetings, Mm -hmm. providing advance notice, and facilitating um, some form of public comment during those meetings, even though they'll be digitally hosted, so I think it's a really good start. The ordinance doesn't really say anything about FOIA, for instance. It doesn't say anything about our municipal elections, but I do think that this is a really good step forward, Um, And I also think that for some of these questions around FOIA and elections, we're gonna need a bit more guidance from the state government anyway. Mm
0: -hmm. And I know that the state government just finished General Assembly and the governor is still working on signing a lot of the legislation. Um, What are your hopes about being able to engage the state government with the localities?
2: You know, I think um, at this point, I I have perhaps more questions than hopes. We we also sent a letter to the State Board of Elections asking them to weigh in on process for Richmond's municipal elections. As you know, the stay-at-home order is in place until June 10th, and um, signatures for candidates hoping to be on the ballot for our municipal elections are actually due on June 9th. Wow. So we're in kind of a tough situation where either... Candidates will have to canvass, which nobody wants right now. Mm -hmm. um, Or people who are hoping to run will simply have to um, forego running and wait four years. Neither of those are really good options. And so I'm hoping that we can hear back something from the State Board of Elections um, saying that they're working in good faith to provide um, additional options for candidates who are trying to get on the ballot. Mm
3: -hmm. I don't know
2: if that's going to look like digital signature collection, extended deadlines, you know, we're really not, not sure what the state will respond with, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself am really hoping for a digital signature collection option, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. I think a lot of things, especially at the state level, are in a high rate of flux right now. Mm-hmm.
0: And a big difference between the signatures for the ballot petitions versus just registering someone to vote is that witness signature as yes. well, correct?
2: Yes. Yeah. So the the way that you collect signatures for ballot for elections in Virginia is you have a form called, I think, the Petition of Qualified Voters. And that petition um, is circulated by somebody who is themselves a registered voter in the state of Virginia. And they function as a witness to all the signatures that they collect. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the state um, is if they push back on the idea of digital signature collection i think it's most likely to be around the idea of the witness for the petition Mm -hmm. though it is certainly the case that um, at least some voters would be able within their home or in their community to find someone who would be able to witness them submitting a, a signature for a petition for someone to be on the ballot so i do think that a lot of these are um, simply questions of political will. I, and, and often, unfortunately, I think that when we make political demands, we get kind of technocratic responses, like that isn't possible for this bureaucratic reason or that bureaucratic reason. Um, I, I really do believe that a crisis is a time when we most need democratic governance. And so I hope to see better from our state government here in Virginia.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the signatures for the ballot petitions are really incredibly important for Richmond this year because of all the seats that are open this year?
2: It is a big electoral year in Richmond. We're going to elect a new mayor. We're going to have um, all new city council representatives, all new school board representatives. Um, I mean, perhaps not entirely new. Certainly some incumbents will be reelected. but um, all of those seats are open. And I really do think that um Refusing to to budge on this uh, issue of signature collections is something that's going to dramatically um, favor incumbents mm-hmm. and also candidates who have access to a high degree of resources and wealth who can solve these problems um, in a range of different ways by hiring consultants, by um, hosting events privately that. Stagger visitors. I think there are ways to to address these issues, but the reality is they they will require a lot of resources and we really do want open democratic access to the ballots for any candidates in Richmond who want to run, including working class candidates who might really be struggling with a lot of issues right now, including Homeschooling their kids right. working extra hours um, if they're working especially in the service industry right. so yeah i I really think that this is an issue of, of um, democracy itself, and we are we're planning on really pushing this question
0: great, great. You also mentioned FOIA. could you just review really quickly what a FOIA is?
2: Oh sure so um, FOIA stands for Freedom of Information Act, and that's um, a federal policy that that allows the public to request access to documentation and information that is germane to public governance. So my my current FOIA request with Richmond Public Schools has been pushed back to an April 14th court date, and I anticipate it will be pushed back even farther. I think the courts are likely to remain closed for a few months now. Um, That FOIA has been really long in coming. I submitted, I think my first request for teacher retention rates back in September, and then I submitted a follow-up request in January. Both times the schools argued that um, no such data exists, which either indicates that they're withholding the data or that they're simply not tracking it. Mm-hmm. If they're not tracking it, that's a violation of the assessment protocols for our strategic plan for the schools. And so either way, I really um, am eager to get that information. And we're looking at, um, because of the court slowdown, a pretty long timeline on that FOIA at this point. So you can see how it's really important for our governing institutions to actually just act in good faith and and give up information when it is requested because otherwise the public can really end up waiting a very, very long time to access really simple data that should already be publicly accessible anyway
0: right and just knowing a little bit about richmond for all you all have used this foia data in the past to really help push forward many of your issues that folks across the city just weren't aware of without this data
2: yeah i really do think that um in richmond we struggle with transparency and governance and there are a couple of reasons that that's the case Um, one is privatization which is something that can really advance quite quickly during a crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the services in Richmond that really should be public are provided by private institutions. So we see private management of parks, we see private management of um, public marketplaces, um, we see uh, private um, services for things like public housing, um, things really that should be public become handled by private agencies, which are not always themselves subject to FOIA laws. Um, The other other way that we lose access to public information in Richmond is simply um, obstinacy of governance. So um, I think probably the classic historical example of this is the mayor's unwillingness to reveal um, the Coliseum Redevelopment Plans that eventually went through the courts where he lost. That's a really good example of materials that uh, the public really do have a legal right to that our government is simply refusing to hand over. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the teacher retention dates are likely more analogous to the Navy Hill documentation materials um, in that I, I suspect the information is possible to get. It's simply that the schools have been reluctant to turn it over. Right. So. Yeah, I think having some assurances that FOIA will be observed during a crisis is one way that we can really track what's actually happening when we can't all just attend a city council meeting in person. Right, and you mentioned um, the FOIA and how it was
0: used successfully in the Navy Hill piece, as well as how you're using it now to collect some data about teachers. I'll go ahead and lift up Richmond uh, Transparency and Accountability Project, who also used the FOIA tool to um, gather the use of force data here with Richmond Police Department that was being refused to be provided by the administration for months. So I, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down a little bit of how the commitment to really support Richmond's most vulnerable during COVID-19 um, can also be supported by making sure that we are receiving transparency and data and that has always been the case for here in Richmond.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you mentioning our TAP. They did incredible work, um, they were very persistent on those FOIA requests. And um, one of the things that we saw from the results that they got is exactly how dire the disproportionality and in impact in policing practices are in the city. And so it was unsurprising that the police were so unwilling to hand that data over. But it was also very clear how much need there was for that data. And one of the things that we're getting informal reports on right now is increased policing activity around public housing and in the East End of Richmond, especially along the Henrico border, and. Um you know, we we really need to know how our city is responding to this crisis. Are they actually providing services or are they cracking down in some ways on our most vulnerable populations, as we saw at Camp Kathy and engaging in a, a punitive approach? We really need to be, be able to tell what's going on. And without um, free access to information and governing documents, it's very, very hard to do that.
0: Right, right. Um, anything else that you'd like to just put out to... Listeners in Richmond or even outside of Richmond, of what to keep an eye out with their local municipal government.
2: Well, I think that right now is a time to watch and see what kind of narrative our government is putting forward about how we're going to respond to a crisis. Virginia is one of the wealthiest states in the country, and um, we are facing in Richmond just really unprecedented levels of poverty, of homelessness, of joblessness. And one of the things I've started to see from state government, I know you're asking about municipal, but part of what I'm seeing on the state level is increased conversations about austerity, cutbacks, Mm -hmm. Um, slowing down the rollout of our increased minimum wage requirements. Mm -hmm. I think those are huge red flags and I want to see how those conversations evolve both at the state and at the municipal level. We need every single elected official in Richmond right now standing up and saying, absolutely not, if ever there was a time we needed to raise minimum wage, this is that moment. Mm -hmm. So in a state with a huge amount of wealth that's largely held by private interests like companies like Dominion and Amazon, Mm -hmm. if we don't start seeing conversations about progressive taxation now, and if we don't see a real doubling down on people first economic justice policies now, Mm -hmm. we're never going to see it with the people who are in office now. And so this is a really good time to be watching those elected officials closely tracking how they're responding to the crisis and making note of that when elections come up, whether that's this fall or in the next couple of years. Great. Thank you
0: so much, uh, Dr. Kristen Reed. And I, you said something else I would love for you to very quickly um, break down for our audience. You mentioned progressive taxation. And just mm-hmm. in case people are not familiar with that term, really quickly, what does that look like?
2: So progressive taxation... Um, in my estimation, really means asking the people who hold the most wealth Mm -hmm. to be paying taxes on those holdings. And there's a lot of different ways that progressive taxation can be worked out in policy. Mm -hmm. But what we're looking at here is um, largely taxation on things like Um, corporate income, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, and not taxation that affects kind of everyday working people. So in Richmond, we've seen a huge push for regressive taxes, whether that's meals taxes, um, cigarette taxes, taxation on kind of small scale consumption by everyday residents. Mm -hmm. We really need to see the people who actually hold wealth paying the taxes, Um, whether that's a CEO like Tom Farrell paying more taxes on his Um, multi-million dollar income, or whether it's Dominion Energy paying more taxes on the wealth that it brings in from consumers, or frankly, just receiving fewer subsidies from the states. That's actually how we're going to be able to meet people's needs to scale in a crisis that really, really, really is unprecedented. And I think for a lot of people, especially those who aren't losing their jobs right now, there's a, a reluctance to recognize exactly how big this crisis is going to be. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. And as we see mass, mass, mass layoffs statewide, I think it's going to become very clear very quickly that if we don't have some progressive policies in place to support the public, we are going to see a serious level of economic fallout. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: I appreciate you breaking that down as you were talking about people-centered policy, in case someone had not heard about progressive taxation. Many of us hear the word tax, and we've been conditioned to kind of freak out by that mm-hmm. um, and and put up our resistance. But this is really part of that people-first policy that you're telling us.
2: Progressive taxation shouldn't be something that worries everyday working people. Um, progressive taxation Really does target people who, people and corporations that have so much wealth, they're likely, unlikely even to be impacted by the taxation itself.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Kristen Reed um, from the Governing Board of Richmond for All. Thank you again for joining us and all the work that you're doing. Thank you so
2: much for having me. It was great to talk to you.
0: You're tuned into WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio with me, Chelsea Higgs Wise, and Chloe! As we social distance while broadcasting from Southside RVA. Stay tuned for the rest of our April 8th episode here on Race Capital.
1: the Cruise through the south, south
0: Today on the show, we have Sean Perryman, who is the president of the Fairfax County NAACP. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sean.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Sean, do you mind sharing with us what you do outside of uh, being the president of the Fairfax County NAACP, just for some background?
3: Oh, sure. Uh, uh, I'm a lawyer by training. I work now at the Internet Association, which is a trade association. We represent a bunch of tech companies in public policy space. Uh, my my title is Director of Social Impact Policy. So basically, uh, I look at how our policies are affecting people, different econ- um, different sectors of the economy, et cetera. I do all our sharing share economy work, which is like Uber, Lyft, uh, Airbnb, anything with uh, people connected to it. I work with that. Mm-hmm. And I also handle our uh, diversity and inclusion platform for the, the different tech companies.
0: Great, great. So during this entire COVID preparation, I have been following the news of how to keep ourselves healthy, but I've also just thinking about this vulnerable population that a lot of our elected officials and our leaders are talking about. And I want to really make sure that we're thinking about the people that are incarcerated and continue to be tied in the system during COVID. And I noticed, um, as on Twitter the way we get so much of our news nowadays and I really am appreciative of your platform because you were tweeting about a black woman in your area up in northern Virginia Fairfax County area that um, had a pretty awful experience in the system and I wanted to take some time to hear her story and tie that a little bit into what we should be thinking about with COVID as well as just our own ongoing struggle with uh, being black and in the system. Tell us a little bit about about this young woman and her experience.
3: What happened was she was actually picked up for a probation violation uh, for failure to appear, and that started back in January. Uh, when she was picked up by a Fairfax County uh, deputy, um, he remarked to her how he thought she was attractive and started hitting on her during that ride and said that he would make sure uh, that he was giving her a ride next time uh, that she needed to be transported between the jails. So there's two jurisdictions at play, Fairfax and Loudoun. Uh, the next time that he did pick her up at Fairfax, he was supposed to take her to Loudoun County um, Adult Detention Center. Mm-hmm. And during that ride, he pulled over at least once to assault her, uh, sexually assault her. Uh, yeah, which is you know horrific as, as it is. You're already an inmate, and then you're being you know assaulted by this deputy.
0: Right. Like you said before, he had actually, that was something that he had hinted before and the transfer prior, right?
3: Yes, this is something that has come up during his arraignment and everything else. He had uh, at least said this to her. This was her allegation that she had said this to her before, more than a month prior, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then when she had to be transported again, sure enough, he was the one to do it. Uh, You know, he assaults her on the way there. And then when she reaches Loudoun County, she let the staff there know what happened to her. Um, thankfully, she was brave enough to do that because, you know, uh, if she hadn't said anything, I don't think anyone would have known. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it raises a whole host of questions of how does a deputy have this power to take an inmate on his alone, uh, alone. He gets to pick the assignment and then take her to another county with, you know, no supervision, no one else there. Uh, so he assaulted this young woman and then she had to stay in Loudoun County jail right after be sec- being sexually assaulted. So um, the Fairfax NAACP and the Loudoun NAACP worked together to, to take a look at this case and to get her out of jail at the very least.
0: Wow, wow. So, and I guess was this, um, this particular correctional officer, I read in an article that he has a past himself.
3: Yes, yes. The, the reason this, I think, uh, got any immediate attention during this pandemic is because this same officer was uh, involved in the very uh, public uh, killing of Natasha McKenna. Mm -hmm. She was a inmate at uh, Fairfax County um, uh, jail, and uh, he was involved with a a team of people that used a stun gun on her until she died. Wow. Um, So the advocacy community activists here in Fairfax County have all been all over this case Mm -hmm. with Natasha McKenna, uh, they're familiar with this deputy. Um, and unfortunately, this wasn't the only incident he was involved in. He was also involved in killing uh, Giovanni Martinez, uh, shot that person uh, to death and uh, claimed that you know, he was attacked and they were mentally ill. So he was involved in at least uh, two, two prior uh, violent incidents that resulted in death. So this is a guy that's been working in Fairfax County for, I believe, 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, and has had this history and still was out there to assault another young woman.
0: Wow. And you said that there was um, the activist community there. Are you all, of course, the Fairfax County NAACP, but any other groups that you're working with that you want to lift in this moment?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obviously, Loudoun County NAACP, uh, they're a- actively involved in this. Um, the way that we found out about the initial arrest was from Surge Nova, which stands, which stands for uh, Standing Up for Racial Justice uh, in Northern Virginia. Uh, we've worked with them and partnered with them on several different things, but they're the ones who brought it attention, to our attention. And I know uh, Black Lives Matter uh, in this region has at least been following the case as well.
0: Um, it's great to hear that you all have that type of collective solidarity helping this woman right now, especially during this uh, pandemic. So tell us, um, what was her original charge?
3: Yeah, I mean, and this gets into some of our other advocacy, but uh, we've been advocating for a long time to raising the felony threshold, the felony larceny threshold in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just for background, Virginia has one of the lowest felony larceny thresholds in the country, which means if you steal. An item at one point, with I think within the last two years, if you stole an item that was two, were valued at $200, you had a felony charge. Mm-hmm. So she was facing, um, she had a charge originally of felony larceny of, of an item worth $200. Uh, that uh, put her into the system. Uh, she was on probation, and then this arrest that happened in January stemmed from uh, failure to to make one of her probation appointments. So then they arrested her again, which uh, put her right back in the system and led to this incident. Um, and that all stemmed from the original charge of felony larceny, which in any other state, most states in the country, if you sold an item worth just over $200, dollars you probably have a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Here in Virginia, it's a felony. Mm-hmm. Now, we got it changed the last year where now it's, uh, it's a, a threshold of $500, but that's still one of the lowest in the country.
0: Right, right and she's now been victim to this institutional failure as well as Mm -hmm. to the officer McPartland, is that his name?
3: Yeah, Deputy McPartland, Um, yeah.
0: yeah. So I know when I caught notice of you tweeting, you all were really pushing to support, to get her out of being incarcerated, especially after her trauma.
3: Yes, we actually got her out on Monday, March 30th. Uh, she was released. We worked with the Loudoun County uh, chapter of NAACP, in, in mm-hmm. uh, worked together and sent a letter to our respective Commonwealth attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just another message that you know elections matter. Uh, I, under the previous Commonwealth attorney we had here in Fairfax, she was probably still be in jail, mm-hmm. and this uh, who knows what would have happened. But um, under this Commonwealth attorney, we sent a letter. She was released um, uh, Monday, March 30th uh, and was out and free. Um, Unfortunately, as soon as she was released, she found out that her and her family were evicted, which happens to so many people who get incarcerated. You know, you come out, um, whether guilty or innocent or whatever else, you come out and your job may not be there, your housing may not be there. Uh, Add to that, that we're in the middle of a pandemic and you can imagine, um, you know, being assaulted, coming out, having no housing. What kind of state she was in
0: is it just her and her housing
3: uh she has a family uh it's her and her mother and and some kids involved Mm. so we were working with her uh and also trying to connect her with services for counseling Mm. uh but then also primarily trying to get her housing we believe we've secured some housing for her over the weekend okay so um yeah so yeah thankfully she has a place to stay now but it's still a long road i mean this is something where you know, this sort of trauma sticks with you for possibly a lifetime. So we're trying to make sure she has mental health services and everything else she needs.
0: And it sounds like it was a trauma that wasn't even really necessary for her to be exposed to being in the system. And I would want to go back a little bit to this particular um, sheriff's deputy and how he was just able to continue to be employed there. I mean, I know you don't probably don't have an answer for that, but to me that just sounds like, well, who else are we missing?
3: Right. I mean, so here's the thing. We, we, we look at this a couple different ways. I mean, we, we were primarily trying to help the victim and that's what we were focusing on for last week, but we sent out a a FOIA request asking essentially just that, like how the hell did this happen? You've had this person who's killed two people Mm -hmm. at least that we know of, uh, and now assaulted a third person. How, what in your system allows for a person like this to continue on the job? And this wasn't a person that was hired recently. This was They've been there for 20 years. Right. So, you know, in me, and I'm a skeptical person, but I don't believe most people get caught on their first offense. Right. So, I mean, the fact that he had the audacity to pull this woman over and assault her in his squad car on, a, on the route and plan it and tell her a month in advance, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick you up next time. I don't think that this could have been his first time, but I don't know that. But so I, th- that's what I'm trying to get answers from from the county, uh, mainly from Sheriff Kincaid, who unfortunately was elected again and uh, we have to deal with. But how does this person continue on the job? What did you do to stop this? Mm-hmm. Uh, also asked Jeff McKay's office. We sent the FOIA request there. He's a chairman of our county and he essentially punted and said, all the records are with the sheriff. But what do you have as the, like, essentially the chief elected official of this county? What responsibility do you have when your sheriff's office has this sort of record? Yeah. So um, these are the things that we're dealing with. And it's really hard. I, I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind during this COVID uh, pandemic is that the same, same dirty crap that goes on from day to day in localities and states still is happening. But now, because they have this virus where all the news is on that, um, you know, people are trying to sweep it under the rug and get away with it. Mm-hmm. The other part of this that's been happening is that uh, the Fairfax Times and local newspaper, newspapers have been laying off our, our local journalists. Right. So we don't even have the, the uh, local journalists to go to anymore and say, look at what's happening here. So it's really up to the activist community just to keep raising the alarm and and letting people know what's happening. Mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned that this particular deputy had a past, particularly with Mm -hmm. two other cases. What were the outcomes of those two cases?
3: In both cases, uh, with Natasha McKenna and Giovanni Martinez, there were no charges brought by the Commonwealth Attorney. Mm. Uh, Our our previous Commonwealth Attorney was uh, Ray Morrow, Mm -hmm. Uh, He was up for election and that was uh, probably the primary reason we had to get him out of there. He just did not think that he needed to help hold these deputies accountable for what they had done. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, when you have someone who's in crisis like a Natasha McKenna, Mm -hmm. uh, they shouldn't be responded to by using a stun gun on them until they die. Like, I mean, that's common sense. Uh, so that was one of the, the primary reasons that we needed to, to replace that commonwealth attorney and we did, um, but- uh, oh, and, my, and hold yep. on,
0: wait, let's, yep. let's just let that sink in of using this yep. taser until death mm-hmm. and there was that level of use of force was mm-hmm. not enough to bring charges against this particular deputy according to the commonwealth attorney.
3: According to the commonwealth attorney, there, there was no reason to bring charges because of that.
0: And I know you mentioned um, your all's policy advocacy with the minimum wage, but um, I know that just statewide and even here in Richmond, we've been following a lot of the use of force data transparency with policing. And mm-hmm. this is just rings in my head of another case why we need to make sure that this data is very much out there and apparent of what's happening to people within the system.
3: Um, that Can I just make a point on that? Please. Um, In Fairfax, one of the things we've been working on is, well, one of the things when you're an advocate and you talk about use of force and you talk about uh, the disproportionality of arrests of Black people primarily being arrested, we we talk to them about this, and they like to say to us that uh, they have a diversion-first program. We divert people, we try not to get them whatever. And it is like pulling teeth to get the data on the racial... Uh, breakdown for that diversion first program because it's great if you have a diversion first program but if it's going to rich white kids to make sure that they stay out of trouble Mm -hmm. and how did natasha mckenna who had you know um pre-existing issues already how did she not end up in a diversion program right how does she end up getting stun gun until she dies and then other people get released into the diversion program who's it for So um, just to your point, we need data, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's arrests, whether it's this, we need the data to see what happens because we know that these systems are set up to serve certain people and that if advocates don't point out this data, that's how it will continue to, to work.
0: Right. And thank you for bringing up even having that data for what's happening in COVID right now. I know that's what's been on my TV all week is just the impact Mm -hmm. on African-American communities. And just to share a little bit of data right now that in Louisiana, the percentage of Mm COVID-19 deaths, 70% of them. 70, yeah. 70% Sean. Yeah. African-American and Michigan, it's 40% black. Now Michigan, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I mean, they're in the twenties, maybe like percentage black in Michigan.
3: And that's, I mean, look, that's what we're gonna see everywhere. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so I know Brooklyn is particularly hard hit
2: yeah.
3: um, by this virus and everything else. And it's gonna be people of color, especially Black people, but we have to say, Black people, that are gonna be impacted by this. But the thing about it here, we have to in Virginia. If you look at the data that they have now, mm-hmm. uh, they're they're breaking doing a racial breakdown. But then if you look into the numbers, it says 53% of people aren't being asked or not reporting. Right. So we don't have the data they're saying and they don't
0: they don't i saw that i saw that same statistic and i was like oh it's not showing that it's black or brown i was like well half of this isn't showing us anything
3: anything right right
0: you mentioned this in new york and also just to give some um percentages that 56 percent of the covid19 deaths coming out of new york are coming from queens and the bronx
3: 56
0: Mm percent of the deaths in new york right. are from people from queens or the bronx um so it it's it's really interesting how i hope it doesn't show up like that here in virginia but what are your thoughts do you mind sharing about
3: yeah i mean look here's the thing and and this is frustrating because if you're used to talking about race sometimes you talk about it in a way that kind of skips a step mm-hmm. so for people who and then people are, well, viruses can't be racist like you know we're not saying viruses can be racist <laughs> What you're saying is that you have systems in place to respond to viruses, whether it's healthcare, police, whatever, that have a long history of uh, systemic oppression to black people, right? So uh, one of the things that we know about the COVID-19 is that it it attacks the respiratory system. If you look at the data, whether it's Bronx or Queens, um, asthma, the, the people who have asthma, who have respiratory illnesses, are going to be poor and Black because of the way that we've set up, you know, the housing systems, the way that we have our environmental justice. Here in Virginia, when we look at pollution, it's going to be Black communities. So if they have respiratory issues they're, and they are just as susceptible as everyone else to getting these diseases, when you get hit with COVID, it's going to hit you harder and more likely going to result in death. Mm-hmm. Same thing for diabetes and everything else, these, these conditions that we see more prominent in those communities. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to talk about racial data and we need to talk about the healthcare response because we know these doctors, they have crazy ideas about the level of pain that people can take if they're Black. And it, it scares me. <laughs> it scares me to think of that, that if you're dealing with a triage system where a doctor is going to make a, a, a decision on who should live and who should die. Mm-hmm. that it scares me if I'm there with a white person that they may think that my life is worth less than theirs. Right. And that's, the, that's if we continue on this road where we can't flatten the curve, mm-hmm. it's terrifying to think the decisions and who's going to be impacted by those decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And knowing that we don't have enough ventilators, the supply is not there, so they are making right. decisions right now about right. who's a priority or not. And we know yeah. that we ain't ever been a priority.
3: Right, but we're already seeing in the data in Louisiana and Michigan, who's dying right so you don't know if those if that's related to the decision making or if that's you know related to the the, the bad health care they have or what it is
0: well you know i have again i've just been diving into this conversation in the last 24 hours and what the people that are analyzing the data right now are showing that it is three particular factors which is number one that health one that you just kind of broke down to us about Uh, we're just more susceptible to certain diseases that now make us even more likely or risky to die of COVID. Number two, it is the jobs. We are the people that are more likely to be working face to face with people and these essential workers right now having to work to pay our bills as well. Mm -hmm. So that's not the second one. And the third one, I would love to hear um, your thoughts about this and the job, if you feel open to it, but really this idea about misinformation, Um, They said that was really the third factor about African American communities weren't necessarily receiving the up to date information and I know I saw on the internet when this was all going on the ridiculousness about black folks can't catch COVID. So Mm -hmm. they're saying now that's actually impacted us as far as our uh, risk to catching this virus. So
3: and I I think that's completely valid. I do think there is misinformation out there that all communities are susceptible to. and uh, But I think within the black communities, if you're foolish enough to believe some of the misinformation, just because, you know, we suffer more when we, we make a wrong decision, right? We don't have those Those safety nets in place, so if you believe some misinformation, you are more susceptible to it. Just you're more susceptible to be hurt from it, right? You don't have necessarily the healthcare where you can like, oh, well, I screwed up and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be fine. This could ruin you financially or can ruin your health. But the other part of it too is I think there is, and this is a tricky part to articulate, but there is a healthy skepticism within the Black community because we have a long history of the medical community and, and the american government taking advantage of us right so there is some natural distrust of certain of of the government and certain things that absolutely you can't argue with because based on the history but
0: yeah. I mean, um, not just from the health of the political realm even the media right i exactly. when i heard misinformation was the indicator like the factor in my mind i was like i, I would rather reframe that as just like another inequity of dissemination of information Mm -hmm, as well mm -hmm. Um, just as the system just isn't set up for people to maybe be at home at 2 o'clock and hear Governor (laughs) Northam every day for that and then have a mask readily available when all of a sudden the things change, right?
3: But then you also have to keep in mind that as it relates to this pandemic For me, at least, my experience has been that I have to teach myself, right? So I have to find sources that are reliable and read about it and everything else because we have an administration that started off with this is going to disappear one day and now is at the point, well, stay in your houses until April 30th. They one day will say masks are not necessary. Don't buy them. Now they're telling you. So they're giving you, they're misinforming you, right? right? So if you are a person working, like we said, on the front lines, you have this job and stuff, you may not have the time to look up what's the latest from the CDC right so if you have an administration that is changing by the minute what they're saying the guidance is this is going to have a huge impact on the black community if they can't go find the information for themselves so i don't want to put it on our community i think it's a it's a failure of government but then i also think there are certain things built in into our shared experiences and everything else that would lead us to to down a path where we may not be as prepared as others.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I was talking to an elder last night, or maybe a couple of nights ago, about this, and he was really saying it. It falls a lot on folks like him and other leaders just coming out and being a presence and a voice to hear. So it's not only the federal government or mm-hmm. maybe local government that we have that this healthy hesitation. to like here, you know, it's people that look like us, people that trust us. Like, are we also? Providing that up-to-date data so that an information so people can hear us and it I don't, I don't know it really hit me in a way of What he asked and what he said was now it's time for black communities to really figure out What is essential to us? Mm-hmm. And how do we come about that right because social distancing looks very different to us in our communities um and it even sounds different so just being able to speak to each other as well as articulating what's essential to us
3: yeah i, I think that's right i think that's right and we've tried to do some of that with the NAACP mm-hmm. um on April 23rd we're having our first virtual meeting ever mm-hmm. where um we're gonna have uh we're, we've invited the director of uh, health for Fairfax County to come out and just tell people you know what's the latest on COVID but i think you're absolutely right like uh the, the benefit of being in a community organization like this is that people trust us because they've, they've known us for all these years, right? They, know, they, may, they may not know, they don't trust Trump, they may not like him, but they know Sean and they, may, they know Chelsea and they'll say, okay, they're telling me this, it has a little bit more credibility. So I think it's really important for all of us to make sure we're getting out the, the um, accurate information to people.
0: Well, I know that I do trust you and the work that you all are doing. I just want to say thank you as well for always lifting Black women, especially in political spaces um, and even in digital spaces. Having Black men just kind of come up and interrupt that when we need it is, is a, um, you know, it's just, it's that support that we need in time so we can see it, like it, and keep moving and doing the work that we already are in, right?
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Anything else about what you have going on in your organization?
3: No, I would just say um, for the people listening, if you're in the Fairfax County area, uh, or even if you're not, uh, we're all in this together. We're all going to have to try to get through this pandemic together. Please check out our Facebook page for Fairfax County NAACP. We're raising money to um, buy some lunches from local Black businesses and then deliver those to uh, the staff at hospitals. So... We're doing everything we can to, even while we're stuck in our houses, to still build community. Um, and we're doing, we're taking a bunch of safety protocols that are being guided to us by the hospital. So, um, but if you want to give your money and you're stuck in your house and want to help out both hospitals and Black businesses, that's one way to do it.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Sean. And thank you to your organization for all the work that you did um, with this particular case and for the work that you're going to be continuing doing.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me.
0: And thanks to all of our Race Capital listeners. Have you checked out our Capital City playlist? Catch up with all of our favorite episodes right on racecapital.com. That's right, we have a website, r-a-c-e-c-a-p-i-t-o-l.com. We're also excited to share that we're back to our weekly time slot at 10 a.m. on WRIR. So we'll talk to you next week. And until then, check your privilege and do your part to correct the narrative.